and welcome to this next episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast brought to you by the UK and a changing Europe. And my guest today is none other than Tim Harford, journalist, broadcaster, author, slightly irritating polymath, truth be told, but someone who is always worth reading and listening to. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you for calling me irritating before I've even had a chance to utter a single word. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's jealousy, pure and simple. There, it's on the table now. So I'm going to start, and we try, we've, we avoid this quite a lot, actually, in some of our podcasts, but I'm going to start front and centre with Brexit, because it seems to me that Brexit encapsulates a lot of the things that you write and think about. Thinking back to the referendum. Sorry, if you, Anand, if you're avoiding Brexit, that's like the, the Pope not wanting to talk about God. I mean, surely, I I'm getting, what's, <laughs> what's the point of you if you can't talk about Brexit even a little bit? I, I, I'm reluctant to be typecast, Tim. What can okay, I, say? I understand. <laughs> okay. All right. So was there, was, was the referendum a failure of communication by economists or a failure to understand the fact that the world isn't all about economics? Uh, well, I think most economists understand that the world isn't about economics, but we certainly did some self-examination afterwards. The, the economics profession did some self-examination afterwards. Uh, so there are some economists who were involved in the business of fact-checking, as I was. You know, I was working for more or less fact-checking the referendum, so not on, on any particular side. We're just trying to establish what's true and what isn't. There were some economists who saw themselves, I think, in a role of, of campaigners. Mm-hmm. Most of them were campaigning for Remain, but there were, some, were a few prominent economists campaigning for Leave. But I think that overall, um, Paul Johnson at the IFS really catalyzed this idea. And I think it, was, it reflects very well on him and on other economists that they took it seriously. But after the referendum result, there was the sense that people hadn't really paid a word people hadn't really paid any attention to a word we'd been saying because most economists believe that the economics of Brexit are very unfavorable. And, no, and we noticed that nobody cared. And so there was this point where we went, okay, well, maybe we should ask ourselves what we did wrong. So there was a big gathering and, and, and there were various observations. So one point is economists are not very good on Twitter. Don't tend to, there's a, a researcher, I think, at the University of Reading, Marina Del Giusta, if I remember rightly, she she compared economists to, to top, top economists to top scientists and found that they engaged less and used more complicated words and were just generally less good on Twitter. Other people commented on the fact that economics uses a lot of jargon. My point was that I felt that we'd done a very bad job of awakening people's curiosity in the economy and how it worked. Mm. So if you, if you think about both the, the, the statements that Remainers were making in the campaign and just the kind of things that economists in general tended to say was very much, well, household income will be down, GDP mm-hmm. will be down, trade will be down. And you can believe this or, or not believe it, but those, all of those statements tend to be kind of the end of the argument. What, what would that actually mean? Why would G, what is GDP anyway? And why would it be down? And why might we care? I think are much more interesting questions. There was a famous example that you brought into the public domain, Anand, of of the, well, that's your bloody GDP, not ours. Mm. That opens up, I mean, that response should open up all kinds of questions. Well, whose GDP is it? How is GDP divided? And is there any reason to believe that the process of Brexit would raise GDP for people in certain areas? And, And what would that mean? And how would that work? And all of these things... 
it turns out Brexit's really interesting. We're discovering all kinds of interesting things about Brexit. None of those things, I think, were, were discussed. We didn't get people curious enough about any of this. But do, we think, do you think part, I mean, part of it surely was, t- was tied up with this anti-establishment strain to the Brexit campaign, which was kind of, don't want to listen to you lot, don't really care. Partly exemplified in what Michael Gove said, but it was it became part of the culture war not to listen to experts. I think that's right. And one of the the points that's become quite clear and something I emphasise in my new book is about the influence of culture and the political tribe and our emotions and our preconceptions and what we believe is hugely important. And I think those things were not fully recognised. Another point that I think is not still not recognised enough is a lot of what people choose to believe is actually about who they choose to disbelieve. Mm-hmm. So think about, if you think about them getting away from Brexit for a moment, you think of the most extreme example of this. So the people who thought that Donald Trump was about to be inaugurated as the first true president of the United States since 1873, this was all going to happen on the, the 4th of March. And this was some, um, one of the latest QAnon conspiracy theories. Yeah. A lot of people look at that and they go, oh, what extraordinary, how can you believe that the world is flat? How can you believe that you know, none of the presidents since 1873 have actually been presidents. How can you how can you believe any of this? But actually, for me, the way I frame it is, well, what are they choosing to disbelieve? Mm. They're choosing to disbelieve all mainstream media outlets on both sides of the political divide. They're choosing to disbelieve not only the Republican Party, but most of the, uh, not only the Democrats, but most of the Republican politicians. Mm. They're choosing to believe the judicial system. And they're choosing to disbelieve an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and, I think a lot of um, the Brexit debate is well understood in terms of what were you, who were you not prepared to listen to and what sort of arguments were you happy to dismiss without a second thought? Tim has got a book out, as you mentioned, and we will be coming on to the book, Fear Not, towards the end of this. But moving from Brexit to the pandemic, things on the surface, at least, seem to have changed fundamentally, don't they? Because all of a sudden we can't get enough of experts and we can't get enough <laughs> of data. I mean, is, is, is that an oversimplification or have our attitudes changed or is it different because it's health? Yes. Uh, so there was this moment early on in the pandemic where it's going to sound strange. And I don't want to diminish the human cost of this because we've lost 145,000 people and counting and just the economic damage, damage people's jobs. It's it's appalling. But purely from the point of view of a sort of fact checking nerdy guy, there was something very refreshing about being on the radio in a moment where people just wanted to know what was happening and no one was trying to win any arguments with anybody. You didn't have to sort of get on the pros and the antis and you didn't have to just deal with all this bullshit. And instead, it was just a case of we're all in this together and we're all just trying to work out what's going on. Uh, And of course, that has only partly continued. So there has been a polarisation of certain things. There are people who think there's no such thing as COVID. There are people who are not very interested in listening to the experts. All all of that has come back. But I think it's easy to exaggerate. Those people tend to be quite loud. The vast majority of people are willing to take medical advice. They trust the, the government scientists government scientists are taken seriously and and we understand we you know we check the coronavirus dashboard like we suddenly these numbers actually mean something and uh, as opposed to just being abstractions uh, nobody nobody for example people say that's your bloody gdp not ours nobody says oh well those are those are your bloody deaths not ours no one yeah. says well those none of those well a few people do but very few people 
would just dismiss these deaths as irrelevant or the hospitalizations as irrelevant and just say none of this means anything to me. Most people, it's very clear why this matters. Now, I mean, more or less has always been a great show, but it has been a triumph during the pandemic, if I may say. So I was just wondering from the sort of presenter's chair, whether you get the impression that people are not only more interested, but are taking a bit more trouble to figure out what data means and a bit more tuned in to data and statistics or have become so during the pandemic? I, I think so. People, people are really interested. You don't need to make the case anymore that this stuff matters. It's become obvious that, that, that it matters. And people are starting to pay attention to distinctions that would have seemed to be kind of absurdly technical. You start going, oh, actually, it, you know, it, it matters how many tests are done that will influence the number of cases we find and people starting to pay attention to that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it has, it has awoken a respect for the potential power of statistics. And that's, you know, one small silver lining in the middle of this very, very dark cloud. From the point of view of more or less, it's clear that more people are listening and more people are paying attention. By coincidence, we will move to a better slot in the Radio 4 schedule. And that was planned about three weeks before the pandemic. That was all kind of in the, in the can. We were going to do that. And then, and then, then they said, actually, can you, can you come on a month earlier? So it was quite a surreal time. We were, we were all trying to figure out how to make a radio program under our duvets and, and in, a, in an awful hurry as well, uh, because we, we were moved forward. And that first series was, ex- was supposed to be six weeks and it ended up being 14 weeks. I mean, you, you'll be familiar, Anand, with the process of just there, there being deadlines and then the, everything gets extended over and over again. And yeah. you, you keep having to go on the radio. This will be eerily familiar to you. <laughs> it was... It was slightly new to me. Did you have any inkling when you sort of started off at the start of the pandemic that more or less would take off in the way it had? Did you think to yourself, well, this is, you know, this is statistics front and centre in national life? Um, I suppose for the first couple of weeks, it was simply a case of we're all, we're all just trying to survive, right? The, you know, the children have come home from school and stock market portfolios melting down and half of the work I was doing has been cancelled and the financial times where I work, they're all working from home. And it just, it just, it was so much going on that that was very distracting. And then there were ju- purely the technical aspect of trying to, how do you make radio from home? We'd never done it. I mean, yeah. we take it for granted now. It's easy. But um, at the time, we're just, you mean, what, without going into a studio, how are we going to do this? How, how's my voice going to sound? All of this stuff. So we were, were so absorbed with that, I think, for the first couple of weeks. And by about week three, suddenly you sort of poked your head up from out of the gopher hole and said, oh, hang on a minute. This is, this, people are listening and this is really important. So, yes, I don't think I had time in advance to see it coming. I mean, this is an impossible question, I suppose. But do you think this newfound faith in experts will outlive the pandemic? Or do you think it's specific to a health crisis? I think it's it's specific to a non-polarised crisis or non-polarised situation. So people have always respected experts, actually. They're, if you look at the data on trusted experts, perfectly happy to, to mm-hmm. trust experts. But when things become politically polarised, people start to get very, very selective about which experts. And there has been a little bit of polarisation in the UK, but not much. There's been a lot of polarization of coronavirus in the US. And I, but I, I just I generally would expect that if you take a technical subject, people want to listen to the experts on that subject. Most people. It's when it gets dragged into the political arena. At that point, people start to get really, really stupid on, on all sides. And I mean, it's, it's been quite interesting to see what's going on in the States. It's normally for something like Brexit. You know, I've got pretty clear views myself on Brexit. And so it's very easy. I'm constantly having to fight the instinct that says uh, there are those idiots on one side and then there are the smart people. 
who agree with me. It's very easy to fall into that trap. And you, no matter how, much, how often you tell yourself, look, we're all capable of being, of existing in our own filter bubbles and we're all capable of this biased reasoning. Deep down, you're like, yeah, but obviously not me. Um, it, it, it's much easier when you can look at a debate from the outside and you can see in, in the States that on the one hand, you've got the COVID deniers. You think, well, they're obviously wrong. But on the other hand, you've got these... Um, a lot of Democrats are like, well, it's obvious that schools should never open ever and that everyone should be wearing two masks outside at all times and tweeting photos of people playing in the snow in London without masks. You're like, well, they're all outside. It's fine. They're all outside. They're in a park. And, you, and there's no, no evidence of coronavirus being passed by snowballs. It's probably fine. And they're saying, well, this is why London, this is why London's sort of in the middle of the, this dreadful second wave. Like, well, but no, no, the second wave just passed and, and, Cases are falling by 20% a week. So you sort of see that, oh, from the outside, this is a person who is behaving how, like, I, how I'm behaving when I'm in my bubble, but I see their bubble more clearly because I'm not in it. And that I'm not directly opposed to them. I'm sympathetic to a lot of their views. But at the same time, I can sort of see that what they're saying about this particular thing is quite weird. I mean, one of the accusations often made of experts is that they just need to learn to communicate better, that they <laughs> need to get their data across more clearly. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Certainly, it helps to be able to cut to the chase, explain things clearly, not use jargon. But I don't think that's sufficient. Fundamentally, people don't want to be bullied by facts. They don't want to feel that someone's talking down to them. They don't want to feel stupid. Uh, they don't want to f- have their cultural identity being attacked. And so there's only so far that an expert can get purely through clear communication. There's a certain point where the whole thing has to turn much more into, can I spark people's curiosity? Can I get them thinking themselves about the world? Can I get them hungry to learn more? That I mean, can be done in a one-way conversation with an expert on the radio or on the television, but it's hard. It's easier if you've got two people in a room having a conversation. At that point, with the right sort of approach, you can, you can get people to change their minds on quite profound things like their attitude to vaccines. But it's not easy and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of listening. And it doesn't matter how good a communication you are. I mean, you look at David Attenborough. He's an amazing communicator, mm. but he's not listening to me, right? How can he listen to me? Of course, he's not listening to me. He's talking at me mm. and he's talking to me in a very interesting and persuasive way. But there's, there's, there is a limit to how far you can go in a one-way communication medium. I mean, this brings me to two things you talk about in How to Make the World Add Up. The first is data visualization. Uh, and you point to potential problems with that. Now, we use data viz all the time to try and you know catch people's attention and oh that's an interesting graph look at the size of that curve can you just go through what you think are some of the potential problems so we we can form opinions on graphs very very quickly so there's a a lovely study from tufts visual analytics lab that found that people have a form an opinion on a graph within 500 milliseconds just half a second so before you know what the graph's about before you know what the axes are before you know anything about the graph You've already thought to yourself, either oh, that's a mess or mm, shiny. And that, <laughs> that's immediately coloring your view of what's going on. So we, and we use the word I see as a, as a synonym for I understand. So a visual sense is very, very potent. So it means that graphs can be very persuasive, but it also means that you can end up thinking that you understand something when in fact you've looked at a graph and you've you've just leapt to the wrong conclusion. And one, one example that I like is, um, so there's an epidemiologist called Eric Fagelding who should know better because you know, he's an epidemiologist. But at the beginning of the pandemic, he tweeted a graph and said, Look, you, you young people, you are not any safer from coronavirus 
than the elderly, just as likely to be hospitalized. The CDC says so. And he tweeted this graph. And the graph does indeed have these bars that basically say, well, you know, here's young people, here's old people, and the bars are the same height. So he's right. But actually, when you look a little more detail, you realize that um, the elderly are split into much smaller categories. So there's sort of 45 to 55, 55 to 65, 65 to 75, 75 plus. Whereas everybody under the age of 45 is just one bar graph. And I I think the reason the CDC did that was simply because, well, you know, all the cases are among the elderly, so you need to look at them in more detail. There aren't really any cases on the, among the young, so you have to lump them all together before you can even see the bar. But of course, people leapt to the wrong conclusion. Now, Fagel Ding, he's an epidemiologist. like He should know how to read a bar chart. It's not that complicated. But of course, he was ruled by his emotion. Now, his emotion was, and I think he had some justification in this, people aren't taking it seriously enough. It's, it's, it's early March or mid-March 2020. People aren't panicked enough. People don't understand how bad this is people need to be more frightened. And so he just grabbed the, I don't, I'm not saying he deliberately misled people. I think it was an accident. He just didn't look closely at that bar chart and just tweeted it. And, and it got loads and loads of retweets. And I think there's, there's so much going on there about how you think you're seeing the world in a very clear way, but actually you're making a very, very straightforward error. And even though you're an expert, your emotions are guiding what you what you regard as plausible and what you choose to amplify. So there's, there's a there's a whole kind of data communications lesson there in one single tweet and one single graph. Which which brings us to Twitter. I mean, one of the things you say in the book is notice your prejudices and instant reactions to data mm-hmm. and slow down. Yeah. How the hell yeah. is anyone meant to slow down <laughs> in an age of yeah. Twitter? Well, Twitter's not so good for that, right? If I try to summarize the whole message of the book, when you're looking at data, remember the three C's: calm, context, curiosity. So Calm down, trying to get the context for the numbers that you're looking at, understand whether they're big or small, whether they're going up or down, understand what they're measuring. And curiosity, be curious. They treat each statistic, each claim as a, as a window onto a world full of stuff you don't know, rather than how can I use this to win an argument? Um, so the three C's, calm, context, curiosity. When, then when you think about social media, I don't want to demonize social media because there's lots of other ways that people can get stuff wrong, but it's not very good at calm. It's not very good at context. And it, it's often, I mean, it can feed curiosity, but often it, often it doesn't. Often it's about winning arguments. I mean, you're on Twitter. So there's smart people on Twitter saying smart things. Epidemiology Twitter. I never say smart things. (laughs) I think, well, you might be right. (laughs) I mean, the epidemiology Twitter, the epidemiologists sort of having these discussions about the vaccines and kind of the case numbers and all of this stuff. That's really smart people saying smart things in real time, engaging with each other, engaging with, with a wider audience. And I want to suggest that you know, there's nothing good ever comes of Twitter, but I think it is intrinsic to the medium that it tends to to strip context away, mm. tends to get people excited and upset and reacting very, very fast. And none of that is good for the art of clear thinking. Tim, this has been fascinating. We're going to take a very, very short break now and we'll be back with you in just a minute or so. Hello, please excuse the intrusion. I'm Paula Sorridge, newly appointed Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and I wanted to encourage you to sign up to our weekly newsletter, which will point you to all the work our experts are doing across a wide range of topics. From free ports to meritocracy and populism, we've got the best social science research available and accessible to everyone. I want to, if you don't mind, sort of go back to where we started from, which is the economics, because obviously... The pandemic has an enormous health impact, but it's also going to have an enormous economic impact. Do you think 
Brexit and the experience of the last few years have taught us any lessons about how we should look at the economics coming out of the pandemic? In particular, do you think in the past we tended to place too much emphasis on macroeconomics and things like GDP and we might be a bit more fine-grained now? Yeah, so, I mean, I've always been a microeconomist rather than than a macroeconomist. P.J. O'Rourke's joke about the difference of the... microeconomists are are wrong about specific things, whereas macroeconomists are wrong about things in general. So I I like to be wrong about specific things one at a time. So yeah, there there has been a tendency, I think, to just look at the overall aggregate performance of the economy in terms of GDP. And in recent years, various things, I think, have taught us to pay more attention to all sorts of details. So you start with the banking crisis. And it turns out we just didn't have very good data on what was going on in the banking system. Mm. the financial flows. Andy Haldane at the Bank of England pointed out that according to the national income accounts, the, I think I'm right in saying the third quarter of 2008 was, was a bumper year, for, a bumper quarter for the, the banking system, according to the national income. No one, I mean, no one thinks it was, but there's something about the way those accounts were being calculated that just completely failed to capture the reality, which was that the whole thing was a disaster. So we didn't, we didn't know who was in debt to whom. We didn't know where the vulnerabilities were. So that, I think, triggered a whole bunch of questions about what data do we need to, to gather. At the same time, economists have started getting more interested in questions of inequality, most famously Thomas Piketty. So this idea, this idea of the 1%. But of course, the, there's lots of other ways to think about inequality. And I think now, more recently still, there's this question in the UK, well, maybe actually income inequality is not the question. Maybe it's regional inequality. So you can sort of say, and you'd be absolutely right, that inequality uh, hasn't really got any worse since I think it hasn't really got any worse since the sort of the mid Blair years. If I'm, I may have got the details wrong, but certainly didn't get any worse since the financial crisis. But regional inequality, I think, potentially is a much sore point and a much more. Mm. But there's a different sort of comparing like the richest ten percent to the poorest ten percent is very different from comparing Leeds to Bradford or comparing yeah. London to Edinburgh or any of the other, or comparing the urban to the rural or any of the other comparisons you might want to make. And I think we're starting to get better data on that. And now with the, with the pandemic, again, you, you look again, well, what don't we know? We don't know how many households use food, food banks. Mm. We know how many food bank parcels are distributed by the Trust or Trust, and they're trying to get a measure of the total number of food bank parcels distributed in the UK. But we don't know, how, we don't know whether it's like loads of households get one, one parcel yeah. a, a year, and they need a little bit of help occasionally, or whether it's a smaller number of households who are going every week or every fortnight. We don't know. It's interesting that we don't know. We could know. There's no reason why we can't know, but we haven't got that data. So one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that we should be paying more attention to the data we choose to collect and the, and the data that we don't. And there's a, there's a really good report out recently by Full Fact, um, the fact checkers. And one of the points they make is that there are, there are just holes in the country's data system, including in the way we look at the, the economy. Those holes are perfectly identifiable. Many of them have been known about for a while. And, you know, we, you could, we can fill them if we want to. We can, go, we can put the effort in and spend the money and collect the data. But often we just choose not to bother. Do you get the impression that beyond the world of economics and in the world of politics, there is a, you know, the, the agenda has shifted and that those sort of issues of inequality that we've just been talking about are now far more prominent than they were before that referendum in 2016? I think so. regional inequality seems to be far more prominent an issue. Yeah. I don't have data on that, but that seems, that seems to be the case. The, and I'm not sure that we have, have yet got the data or the, the economic tools to think sensibly about them. 
So it's on the agenda, but we're not necessarily having a sensible conversation. So just the fact that the Chancellor's decided to open a, a micro treasury in Darlington, to me says, this is not someone who's really thinking seriously about what it would mean to, re, to reinvigorate the North. I like Darlington. Some of my best friends are from Darlington. I mean, literally, my best man, in fact, lives in Darlington. I've got nothing against Darlington, but you know, you probably wouldn't start with Darlington if you were trying to reinvigorate the North. You'd start with, by trying to get a city going. You'd start with Manchester or you'd start with Leeds. And how can we connect them better? That's probably what you'd do. But, and, and, and you wouldn't start with Brexit either. I mean, it's very unclear how Brexit helps the north of England. But, you know, with, here we are and we need to think more seriously and we need to, to do a better job because clearly the UK has not done a great job of dealing with regional inequality for a very, very long time. And finally, do you think that the sort of general understanding of data basic maths of statistics is good enough in this country for people to know the things they ought to know i think it's it could always be better but i think that actually it's you need less maths than you might think Mm. to ask sensible questions about numbers it's very tempting for for a nerd like me to go straight to well let's talk about t statistics p values correlation versus causation funnel plots all the sort of you get really really nerdy with the data and very often it's it's the questions that you need to ask are much simpler and they are things like is this number big or small is this number going up or down what actually is being measured here very often we're not asking those fairly simple questions and so we end up reaching the wrong conclusions so i i I think we could all do better but the sort of skills and habits of mind that we need to acquire are not necessarily the ones that you might think do you think the media is helpful or not in that regard when it comes to presenting statistics i mean the media is obviously a huge a huge range of different institutions and practices i think it's never been easier to sit in a, a bubble of nonsense and just never think hard about anything or to participate in you know out, you know outrage after outrage on twitter shaming people and and never really have to question your own prejudices it's never been easy to do that but at the same time it's never been easier to find really high quality analysis great graphs really well sourced pieces with links to all the original research to find academics on social media, blogging, on Medium, on Substack, on Twitter, out there explaining what's going on. You've got the think tanks, you've got all, I mean, it's, there's a wealth of information out there. So never been easier to make yourself stupid, but it's never been easier to make yourself smart either. So, you know, the, you can't just lump the media into, into one amorphous blob. There's, there's some great stuff out there and there's some just awful stuff out there as well that is a very very good note i think on which to end actually i will add talking about economists using complicated language that jonathan porter's once said stochastic to me in the pub (laughs) yes i think he means random right doesn't he oh i've no idea (laughs) yeah i think i think he means random but i've never fully (laughs) understood what it means either tim thank you so so much and to all of you listening do buy the book because it's not only very very informative it's actually a really really good read as well so it's well worth your time tim thanks ever so much My pleasure. Thank you.